Thanks to John Luca for trying to wake you guys up before I came up here this morning. Uh, it's good to see you here this morning. The only wise God in all his infinite foreknowledge uh, appointed that I would preach this Sunday and not last Sunday. Uh, so let your hearts be still. They didn't send the young single guy up here to preach to you from the Song of Songs. This morning we're talking about Christmas. Let's pray. Father, it is a joy to be in your house this morning with your people to sing your praise, to hear from your word, to the glory of your name. But we confess that right now we need your help. Christmas has become a busy time for us. We have final exams and travel plans, but for now we're here. We have families to see and absences to grieve, but for now we're here. So be here with us in this time. By your spirit, lead us to hope in your son, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a lot of tension in our world right now, in America right now. 2017 has been a little crazy by most accounts. And I don't think I need to be specific for you to know what I'm talking about, but times are tense, and most of it involves identity. Not only identity, but certainly not less than that. Some of the harshest divisions we see in our conversations in our country right now are caused, at least in part, because of different answers to the fundamental human question, who are we? Who are we? In the news recently, uh, the word evangelical has been used a lot. And it's a religious term that has become somewhat political. Sometimes it's hard to know what people mean when they use it. EBF belongs to a denomination. We belong to the Evangelical Free Church of America. We are evangelical Christians. Given the political connotations associated with that word, some of you might be embarrassed by that. And I sympathize. I belong to this Evangelical Free Church. I'm a student at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. I'm happy to be an evangelical, but sometimes I wish I could qualify the word. Yes, I'm an evangelical, but that doesn't mean, but I didn't, but I'm not. What does it mean to be an evangelical after all? The word evangelical comes from the Greek evangelion. It means good news. Sometimes it's translated gospel. Evangelicals identify themselves with the good news of Jesus Christ. Evangelicals are those who are marked by the good news of Jesus Christ. That is who we are. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. And let's stand as you're able as we turn there for the reading of God's word. We'll be reading from Matthew chapter 1. That's the very beginning of the New Testament. It's about three quarters of the way through your Bible. Matthew chapter 1, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and we'll go through verse 17. Matthew 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. 
and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. You can take a seat. All right. So let's put all the cards on the table here. Let's admit that this is the passage we normally skip over. Sure, it might be the first passage of the New Testament, but those names are hard to pronounce. I only recognize about six of them, and I don't really see any significance to naming everyone's father. And if there is a point, it's really hard to see how that would have any bearing of our lives, bearing on our lives here in Evanston. It seems like the opening credits to a movie. If that's how you feel right now, fair enough. Fair enough. But we believe that this passage of scripture is inspired by the living God who has always spoken and still speaks today through his word, where he has given us all that is necessary for salvation and right living and for hope. We come to scripture looking for hope, looking for good news. So where is the good news in this passage? Where's the good news? Well, while we're in the business of laying our cards on the table, let me show you my hand. There is good news in this passage but it takes some digging to find it. It's not very hard to see the good news when Paul says in Ephesians, by grace you have been saved through faith. That good news is pretty clear to us. But it takes a little more work to see the good news when Matthew says, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. That good news is not so immediately clear to us. But it is there. I promise you it's there. So, If you're willing to dig with me with the Lord's help, 
we're going to find some good news this morning. It's not that God is trying to hide it from us or that it's this sort of secret knowledge that only the chosen elite can see. It's just that Matthew's world and our world are different worlds. So what may have been clear to them in this passage is not necessarily as clear to us. But it's still discernible, and it's still true. We just have to work a little harder to see it. So, let's go dig for some good news. We should start by talking a little bit about genealogies. Verse 1 calls this the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So the natural question is, what is a genealogy? Put simply, a genealogy is a record of someone's ancestry, a list of names that traces his lineage back from generation to generation. Think Ancestry.com. This passage is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In the Bible, genealogies are actually pretty common. They're used with a lot of major characters in the Old Testament as a way of setting the stage to show where in Israel's history we are. Some genealogies do more than just set the stage, though. Sometimes they were used to establish ethnic purity, to prove that someone was a true Israelite. Other times they were used to show that a king is the proper heir to a throne. In a world where the authority was passed down from fathers to sons, genealogies were used to establish the new king as the worthy ruler. It's also important to point out that genealogies could be selective. They were not so much about historical accuracy as they were about identity. So without making any false claims, Matthew is being selective with whom he includes and whom he does not include in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. If you compare it to other genealogies, he skips some people. If you look at 1 Chronicles or this or that, he chooses who he's putting in this passage and who he's not. And that's not wrong of him to do. The point of a genealogy was not to scientifically go through and prove all the historical accuracy of a person. It was to establish their identity. It might help to think about a resume. So when I'm applying for jobs, I will be quick to note that I was a pastoral apprentice at EBF. It's a worthy role. But I may or may not forget to list that I used to serve french fries at Chick-fil-A. I'm not lying. I'm just being selective. A genealogy is not false information but it is intentionally selective. In short, this passage is about the identity of Jesus Christ. And Matthew is trying to make two main points about him. These are both revealed in the first verse. Look at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Why these two people? I mean, it's not chronological for Matthew to point out David and Abraham specifically. And why start the genealogy with Abraham? Luke traces his genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam. Why does Matthew start at Abraham? For Matthew and for us, these are the two main points. Jesus Christ is the son of David. And Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. So, let's talk about the first point. Jesus Christ is the son of David. David is an Old Testament celebrity, if you will. He's known today for his defeat of Goliath. Uh, He's known because he wrote the Psalms, a lot of them. He's known for being a a man after God's own heart. But in Scripture, 
The most important part, the most important thing about David is that he was king of Israel. He was the ideal king of Israel. He was the king with whom God made a covenant. This covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When God made David king over Israel, he promised him that his house and his kingdom shall be made sure forever. God said to David, your throne shall be established forever. The important thing about David for Matthew and for us is that he was a king. He was the ideal king. Look at verse 6. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. Matthew specifies David's importance is that he was the king. A lot of names that come in the genealogy after David, they're kings too. But David is the king. So there's Solomon and Rehoboam and so on. But they're not called the king. David is called the king. And his throne was to be established forever. We have no idea as Americans what it means to live under a king, what it means to have a good king. Most of us can't even fathom what that reality would be like. Whatever we do think about kings, it probably comes from watching The Crown on Netflix about Queen Elizabeth and the royal family. Or maybe you've been following the news about Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's recent engagement. But we don't have an idea about kings. We don't know what it's like to live with a king. In fact, I think we're pretty skeptical about the whole idea. We live in a democracy of the people, by the people, for the people. And we're still unsure about our government. More unsure about it than we've ever been. And at times, it seems like with good reason. Not so for Israel. They longed for a king. In particular, they longed for the Davidic king, the ideal king. David represented this ideal king. This ideal king, the Davidic king, was the king who loved the law, who ruled as a shepherd king, and whose throne would have no end. David was the king who loved the law. He delighted in it. He meditated on it it day and night. He wrote Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the whole Bible. And it's full of praise for the law. He writes, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Deuteronomy 17 said that the job of Israel's king, the first thing they they were supposed to do when they were made king was to write their own copy of the law. So take their own hand and their own pen and in their own book, write their own copy of the law. And they were supposed to carry it and meditate on it and have it with them at all times. This was the most important thing that a king of Israel was supposed to do. David was the ideal king because he loved the law. And the ideal king was to be a shepherd king, full of mercy and care for his flock, for his people, for the people of Israel. And as a boy, David was actually a shepherd and learned to care for a flock of sheep to protect them and to provide for them and to watch over them. And as a man, he would do the same for the nation of Israel. The ideal king, the Davidic king, would reign forever, and his throne would have no end. God promised to David that such would be the case for him, that his throne would never end. The Davidic king was the ideal king. But David was not Davidic enough. You see, he loved the law, but he broke it 
when he saw Bathsheba bathing on the rooftop. Even in ancient Israel, greed could corrupt the hearts of men in power. David protected and cared for the nation of Israel as their shepherd king, as a shepherd cares for his flock. But only until he decided to have Uriah killed in an act of selfishness and pride and shame. His throne was supposed to last forever, but David died. He was not a king forever. And his throne was passed along from generation to generation, but it was not long until the throne of Israel vanished, the nation scattered into exile. Our passage mentions this in verse 11, when it refers to the time of the deportation to Babylon. From this time on, Israel had no king. But the Israelites, at the time of Jesus' birth, were still waiting for a king. They knew that God had promised to David an eternal throne, and they were yet longing for that throne to be reestablished and for a king to come rule in power. By calling Jesus Christ the son of David, Matthew is telling the Israelites, and he's telling us, that he is the long-awaited king. Matthew wants his readers to see Jesus as this long-awaited king of Israel, the son of David. And Matthew makes this point pretty clear by including it in the first verse. He says, Jesus is the son of David. But if that's not convincing enough for some of you, there's more evidence. David is everywhere in this genealogy. It's not his genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. But David's name is in it five times. That's a lot of times to be in someone else's genealogy. Beyond being all over the genealogy, he's also hidden throughout it. Matthew sneaks this in the last verse of our passage. Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, so what's up with all the 14s? I mean, is that just Matthew's favorite number or something? Or did he just notice a pattern and thought it was pretty neat, so he pointed it out? Well, numbers in Scripture are often symbolic, right? So seven is associated with, like, holiness and perfection. God made the world and then rested on the seventh day. We celebrate the Sabbath every seventh day. Israelite slaves were freed every seventh year. Or 12 is associated with completeness and wholeness because represents the whole people of God in the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 disciples. They represent this too. Scriptures are off, or numbers in Scripture are often symbolic. 14 is a royal number. It is David's number. So in Hebrew, as in a lot of other languages, they don't actually have numerals. So the way they write numbers is they just attribute a numeric value to every letter. So A is 1, B is 2, C is 3, and so on. In Hebrew... The letters in David's name are Dalit, Vav, Dalit. Four, six, and four are the numeric values to these letters. Added together, this comes to 14. 14 was David's number. By pointing out this pattern, Matthew is again hinting at the readers, the important part about this genealogy is to show that Jesus Christ is the son of David. David is everywhere in this genealogy. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. And Jesus is more Davidic than David was. Jesus is more Davidic than David was. 
David may have loved the law, but Christ fulfilled the law. David's mercy ran short, but Jesus Christ has mercy that is new every morning. In Matthew's gospel, when the sick and the blind come to Christ for healing, they cry out, have mercy on me, O son of David. That's how he's addressed, because he is Israel's shepherd king, full of mercy for his people. David's throne ended. Israel was sent into exile with no king to lead them. But Jesus Christ is on a throne that never ends. He is the Davidic king, and he is the last king. There is no king but him. Revelation tells us that he is the ruler of kings on the earth. He is always in control, acting in total sovereignty over all things. Jesus Christ is the last and true king of Israel. He is the son of David. I'm ashamed to admit how little I know of my family history. So I've met my grandparents. Um, I'm told that I met my great-grandmother at one point. I don't remember it. And anything before that, you know, I've heard bits and pieces, but there's not much. The culture I grew up in doesn't really view genealogies as all that important or ancestors. Some cultures today still do, but mine didn't. And um, we don't live in a world here in America where nearly everything about you is determined by who your dad was. So your identity and your life circumstances and your vocation, for the most part, that's not the way our culture works. And if we do research our family history, it's usually just for curiosity's sake. Genealogies are not as important to us, but they were important to ancient Israel to establish purity or authority or identity. And Matthew is using this genealogy to show us the identity of Jesus Christ. And the first thing he wants us to know is that Jesus is the son of David. Matthew's second point, and our second point, also found in verse 1, is that Jesus Christ is the son of Abraham. This point also is an identity claim about who Jesus Christ is. David was important because God made a promise to him, and Abraham is important for the same reason. So we had the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, and now we have the Abrahamic covenant. Creative, I know. We learned about this one in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and following. Um, In Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that he will make him a great nation. Right, so Abraham is important to Israel because he is the father of Israel. He is, in a sense, the first Israelite. His family is the beginning of Israel, forming a nation that God chose to be his people. The Old Testament is primarily about God's relationship with this nation of Israel his chosen people. He chose this nation and them alone to be his people, to reveal himself to them and to care for them and to redeem them and to lead them in righteousness. But from the beginning, it was never meant to only be about Israel. When God told Abraham that he would make him a great nation, he promised further that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. Here, in the very choosing of Abraham and his family and his people, in the very formation of the nation of Israel, God promises that there is room for the whole world to enter into this blessing from God. Abraham is the beginning of this genealogy, the beginning of the family history of Jesus Christ. So let's spend a bit of time talking about this family history. We'll start in verse 2. Let's look at verse 2 into verse 3. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of 
Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are known as Israel's patriarchs, right? So God is often revealed in the Old Testament when he comes to someone, he says, I am God, the, fa- uh, the God of your fathers, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. These are the patriarchs of Israel, the first generations of the Israelite nation. It says, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So Reuben and Levi and Simeon and the rest are all included in that phrase here, Judah and his brothers. If you know the story of Joseph, you know that these brothers didn't exactly get along, but God in his sovereignty used what they intended for evil to bring about good. Verse 3, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Okay, to this point, we've been doing pretty good. You know, a little bit of brothers fighting, but nothing too bad. If you know the story of Judah and Tamar, this is where it gets bad. If you don't know the story, it involves death and prostitution and incest. Judah gets Tamar, his daughter-in-law, pregnant while she is disguised as a prostitute. Not exactly family history to be proud of. But here, it's in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Look a little bit further down at verse 5. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Rahab was a prostitute, and Ruth was a Moabite. If this genealogy was supposed to establish moral or ethnic purity, it's not really doing a great job. This is the family history of Jesus Christ, and in a sense, this is our family history. If we keep going down the list, we see David having a child with the wife of Uriah, which is a story of shame and adultery and murder. And then there's a list of Israel's kings, more than half of whom are totally wicked, absolutely evil, evil men. And then the nation is sent into exile and the names fall into obscurity. We really don't know a lot about these last dozen or so names in the list. And then, into this obscure and evil and impure family comes Jesus Christ. God promised Abraham that his family would become a great nation, that in his family all the families of the earth would be blessed. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that promise. Jesus, being himself Jewish, is the true Israel in whom the whole world can become part of the people of God. By calling Jesus the son of Abraham, Matthew is recalling the promise that God made to Abraham, saying that Jesus is the way this promise comes true. The family of Abraham is not special for their moral uprightness. They are not remarkable for their ethnic purity. They have lost whatever authority they had when they were kings. Abraham's family is only remarkable because they are the family of Jesus Christ. In some circles today, evangelicals have the reputation of believing that they are better than everyone else. This passage murders that idea. It puts any notion of superiority to death. We have no moral innocence. There is no such thing as ethnic purity. 
we have no inherent authority. We are a motley crew through and through. Our family history is messy, to understate it. And our only hope, our only hope, is that we are marked and covered by the good news of Jesus Christ, that we belong to his family, and that he is our king. Matthew tells us that Jesus Christ is the son of David, the last and true king of Israel. And he tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, in whom all the families of the earth can be blessed. This passage is the family history of Jesus Christ, and the question we have to ask ourselves is, is there room for us in this family? Can we belong to this family too? And if so, how? The answer is yes, and Matthew wants to use this genealogy to invite us into this family. Even this genealogy has good news for us. Let's look a little bit at the structure of the genealogy. Remember when I said we might have to dig? This is the digging. I made a chart to help us, though, so I think, I think we'll be okay. Um, so if you can put that first slide up. Yeah, perfect. Thank you. Okay, so Matthew has organized this genealogy into three tables, and he tells us about this in verse 17. Remember, he says there was 14 generations from Abraham to David, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So the first table is verses 2 through the beginning of verse 6. Second table is 6 through 11. Table 3, verses 12 through 16. The first table is Abraham to David. The second table is David to exile. And the third table is exile to Christ. There are 14 generations in all three of these tables. Tracking so far? Okay. I'll take that as a yes. We'll pray. Okay. Next Slide, please. Next chart. Same thing, still three tables here, but we're going to pay close attention to a couple things. The first two tables mention brothers. The first table has Judah and his brothers. The second table has Jeconiah and his brothers. Judah and his brothers are the 12 tribes of Israel, right? This is the establishment of the nation. These are the whole people of God being established. Jeconiah and his brothers in the second table mark the end of Israel. When the nation is sent into exile, scattered, there is no more Israel. This marks the beginning and the end of the people of God. There are brothers in the first table and brothers in the second table, but where are the brothers in the third table? The third table is missing brothers. And it's also missing a generation. I know we just said that there are 14 generations in each table. Matthew says there are 14 generations in each table. But if you count them, there are only 13 generations in the last table. The skeptics in the room can count them this afternoon if you want, but I pinky promise there's only 13 in the last table. Now, it could be that Matthew's just bad at math or that he miscounted, but I don't think that's it. That's not the reason that there's 13 generations in the last table. He does this on purpose. The genealogy is missing a generation. This is how Matthew extends the invitation to those who come after Christ. Where are the missing brothers? Where is the missing generation? Later in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 12, Jesus asks, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? 
and stretching his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Those who follow Jesus Christ are the missing generation from the third table. We are the missing brothers. And later in Matthew's gospel, in the last chapter of it, the women come to find the empty tomb. And the angel tells them that Jesus has risen. And he tells them to go and tell the disciples the good news. And so the women start running back to where the disciples are. And Jesus stops them on their way. He stops them on the way to go and tell the disciples. And he gives them the exact same command. He says, go and tell, only he changes a word. Jesus tells the women, go and tell my brothers. Disciples of the resurrected Christ are now his brothers and sisters, united with him and adopted into his family. To be a follower of Jesus Christ is to recognize him as your king. To be so closely identified with him that he calls you your brother, his brother or his sister. And this closeness does not come from a certain kind of moral innocence. Neither does it have, does it have anything to do with ethnic purity. This closeness comes through faith. To be identified with Jesus Christ means to have faith in him. To believe in him for your life and for your hope and for your salvation. This is what it means for Jesus Christ to be the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is our king, and we are his people. Matthew's gospel ends with these disciples, now brothers of the living Christ, being sent out to proclaim this good news to the world. They would soon become the church, the church that is consisting of all peoples from all nations. This family, this church, is opened wide. Those who belong to the church, to the family of God, are those who follow Jesus Christ, the King. It is no longer just about Israel. All the families of the earth can be blessed. And this church and her good news spread throughout the world like a wildfire. The book of Acts records the beginning of it for us. These disciples, now brothers, were spreading the good news of Jesus Christ throughout the Roman world. And it didn't take long before the church in Antioch was causing trouble, not for anything like civil unrest, but for unusual unity. The Jews and the Gentiles were publicly worshiping Christ together, and the Roman government had no idea what to do about it. They had never seen anything like it before. They didn't even know how to refer to this group of Jew and Gentile together. So they created a new word for it. They'd never seen anything like it. So they called them Christians. A few chapters later, Paul and Silas are brought before the leaders because they were turning the world upside down. This upheaval was not a coup. The disciples didn't set out to create anarchy or to upend society but they went out to proclaim the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ can be our king too. The accusation that was brought against them when they were before the leaders is that they were saying there was another king and they called him Jesus. This king and this good news, the good news of his kingdom have continued to spread even to us here in Evanston today. Sometimes 
we don't like the idea of having a king. A king deserves allegiance and submission, and sometimes that's hard. We're bent away from such things. Some of us might be in a season where it's really hard to see his good and sovereign hand. It's hard to believe that Jesus Christ really is the king. I mean, where is his good and powerful hand over my life now if he's really king? And it's precisely in those moments when we need each other as brothers and sisters, as a family of Jesus Christ, as followers of this good and gracious king, to remind ourselves of this good news. He is a king unlike any other king. What other king is also a savior? He is, after all, a crucified king. His rise to glory was not without suffering. He received his crown at his crucifixion. He was raised wounded. He ascended to sit on the throne of the right at the right hand of the Father, and from there, he does not rule with an iron fist, but with scarred hands. And he invites us to come and to follow him by faith and to be his people and to believe that he is a good and true and trustworthy king. We belong to this family of Jesus Christ, the same family described in this genealogy. This same family with Jacob encouraging all the wrestlers in the room, with Tamar seeking someone who has been violated to come find healing and wholeness in the arms of this good king, with Rahab waiting for someone else to take a great risk for the mission of God, with Ruth looking for someone to join her in believing God's trustworthiness with David singing amazing grace that covers even adultery and murder, with Mary yearning for someone else to exclaim with her, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Jesus Christ is our King, and we are his people. And that is good news. It's why we cut down trees and put them in the middle of our living rooms. It's why we buy gifts and wrap them and drink eggnog and sing carols and fly to be with our families again because our king has come, because our king has come. We are freed to submit to this good and wise and gracious king. He made us a people, calling us his own family and marking us with his good news. So we pray and we sing and we find hope again this Christmas in Christ, our crucified king. He has come, he is coming, and he will come again. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in this good news, that you would send your Son to be our Savior and our King. He is our only hope. And we want to be the kind of people that are identified by this good news. Help us to be a joyful people, a humble people, people who serve one another and love one another and encourage one another with this good, good news. In this season, help us to trust your kingship over us. Sometimes we cannot see what you are doing, and that frightens us. And in our weak moments, we feel threatened by your absolute authority. 
So comfort us by your spirit as you speak peace to our hearts in this season. Your sovereignty is a good thing because you are wise and gracious and patient with us. So forgive us for the times that we do not trust you and lead us to walk again in obedience to all the good things that you've called us to. As people and as a church, we want to be marked as brothers and sisters of the crucified King, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.